It might be familiar to old hands at serving government in appointed positions, but for the first time, the ethics requirements and the paperwork that goes with them can be daunting. Elizabeth Horton is the associate counsel at the Office of Government Ethics. She joined Tom Temin for a review of those rules. Let's start at the top. Suppose a person is nominated to the cabinet, and we're hearing the cabinet nominees come out daily, you know, from the president-elect. What do they have to do? So generally the process begins when the presidential personnel office or the presidential transition team registers a prospective nominee as a filer in OGE's electronic filing system called Integrity. The nominee then receives an email with login instructions and is able to fill out the public financial disclosure report. They fill that out with all of the information and submits the report electronically. At this point, ethics officials review the report for technical completeness and accuracy and very often contact the nominee with questions or needed corrections. And it's quite common to have several rounds of back and forth between the nominee and ethics officials to try and ensure that the report is technically complete. And there may be actually additional rounds of back and forth prompted when the Office of Government Ethics starts its review of the report. Also during this time, there's an ethics agreement that is also drafted to document the resolution for any potential conflicts of interest that were detected in the financial disclosure report. And this also may entail some collaboration and have several iterations. And once the ethics agreement and the draft report are in pretty good shape, OGE pre-clears or tentatively approves the report and waits for the announcement of the intent to nominate or the actual nomination of the individual. After that, the nominee formally signs and files the report, and it's no longer a draft at that point. The prospective agency where they would be working certifies the report, and then OGE certifies the report. So it's a two-stage process, but when filling out the forms initially, can the candidate or the potential nominee start and stop? Absolutely, yes. It's an electronic filing system, so they can start and save it and then continue from where they're stopped. And if this were all in paper, how many pages do you think it would be, say, for someone complicated? Well, it wasn't that long ago that we had paper reports, actually, and so it really varies by case, and it just depends on the number of holdings and entries that someone may have, and the system just allots for whatever information is required to be put in, and it ends up being whatever it is. Sure, yeah, because I was thinking of someone, say, just comes to mind, Rex Tillerson, when he was originally nominated for Secretary of State, long business career, probably had investments all over the place, board memberships. That can be a pretty daunting process. Do people tend to, at that level, maybe retain counsel to help them get through all this? I do believe that some people have retained counsel, but hopefully with the electronic filing system, it's it's hopefully very user-friendly, and so it's not a requirement that one do so. We're speaking with Elizabeth Horton. She is associate counsel at the Office of Government Ethics, and we've talked a lot about the process for filing ethical disclosures. What are the ethics issues that are being sought? Is it simply financial conflict of interest or some other form of moral turpitude that might show up? So the mission of the executive branch ethics program and therefore the rules and processes that are part of that program is to prevent 
conflicts of interest of executive branch employees. So the reason that mission is so important is that it helps to ensure that executive branch employees are making impartial decisions based on the public's interests, that they are responsible stewards of public resources, and that they loyally adhere to the Constitution and United States laws. And do they usually need to resign boards, say, aside from the direct employer that they would be leaving if they are executives that may serve on several boards? Do they have to resign them, generally speaking? So, yes, there are various remedies that they may have to take in order to fulfill their ethical obligations, and that may include resigning positions or divesting assets. And it's important to note as well that past administrations have and incoming administrations may have additional restrictions and policies as well. So, for example, it would not be a federal requirement to not invest in stocks that people think are bad, like oil companies or timbering companies, but that could be the administration's policy, and therefore that would be between the administration, the incoming group, and that appointee. Yes, that can be, but it should also be noted that the determination of workable solutions is very case-specific. Ethics officials are very aware of an agency's business and the prospective duties of a nominee, and so they are able to then surgically determine what needs to resolve any potential conflicts of interest. And are the rules and procedures the same for cabinet levels all the way down to the ordinary Schedule C that might come in in a specific agency at a specific job? So executive branch employees must comply with the conflict of interest laws and the standards of ethical conduct for employees of the executive branch, or the standards of conduct for short. But there are some differences in ethics obligations depending on the duties and positions of employees. For example, some employees have to file confidential disclosure reports, while others file the public financial disclosure reports, and others still have their reports reviewed by OGE. Also, while all new employees must complete initial ethics training, most agency leaders must also complete additional ethics training. Got it. So the ethics training then takes place in the agency. It's not conducted by OGE, but by ethics officers at the agency? That's correct. And in your understanding, do even the very highest level officials tend to go through that type of training? Oh, absolutely. Not only must they go through an initial ethics briefing, they have to go through the initial ethics training and then annual ethics training as well. Yeah, so even, you know, the Mike Pompeos or the Hillary Clintons when she was Secretary of State, people like that have to do it every year. Absolutely. And we mentioned the sale of certain assets might be required. What about blind trusts and putting your whole investment portfolio into someone else's hands? Is that often a remedy? Is that an allowable remedy? Yes. As part of the conflicts analysis and the resolution of potential conflicts, there are a number of remedies available and blind trusts are qualified trusts are also available. But again, as I mentioned, the determination of the best solutions for a potential conflict is very case-specific. So while that is an available remedy, I would say it's probably not one of the most common. Got it. And are there cases where you could keep the securities? Suppose your only investment is some mutual fund that has 5,000 stocks in it. Could you probably hang on to that one because no decision you could make could really have any material effect on that investment? 
Right. So during the conflicts analysis, the person's duties and the type of business that comes before the agency is considered. And so if there's a holding that would not interfere with that or um, would not be affected by any of those things, then it is likely that a person would not have to divest of that type of holding. But that is the type of analysis that the ethics officials go through to ensure that there won't be any potential conflicts of interest. Yeah. So in other words, uh, to put it in the opposite extreme, if you were to come in as the chief procurement officer of a defense agency, you probably don't want to have stock in Northrop Grumman, Lockheed and Boeing. Right. And that's the case that some agencies also have specific prohibited holding regulations. So as I said, it's not only specific to an individual, but some agencies also have additional restrictions. Well, it's a high bar, but I guess great work once you get over it, huh? We believe so. We think it is a great system and truly believe that it tries to ensure that the public has trust in its government. Elizabeth Horton is Associate Counsel at the Office of Government Ethics. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.